Corsica, Sardinia, Piedmonte. This week, we're visiting some great and some undiscovered wine regions of the world. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're talking wine with Chuck Furuya. Not only is Chuck a master sommelier, but Chuck helped design the sommelier test, the one that's used today to grade master sommeliers. I don't know that there's anyone with more expertise in the field of wine than Chuck. But before we start, a couple of things about today's show. If you're a regular listener to Destination Eat Drink, you might recall episode 20 about Hawaii. That's the episode where I spoke to Guy Hagi. I told Guy about my favorite wine bar, Vino, and he told me about his friend Chuck, who runs the place. So I reached out to Chuck and scheduled an interview. Chuck and his staff couldn't have been more kind and accommodating to me when I visited Vino for the interview. But the thing to understand about this interview is that it takes place in Vino. So there's some background noise during the interview. I spent a lot of time working with the audio and editing it, but there's only so much you can do when you're sitting in a huge dining room of a restaurant. Even so, Chuck has a passion for undiscovered and rare, but not necessarily expensive wines that really comes through during our talk. So let's talk to Chuck about wine. What to drink? I'll have another on Destination Eat Drink. Chuck Furuya is a master sommelier. He's also wine director at DK Restaurants, food and wine writer for the Honolulu Star Advisor newspaper, and maintains one of the best wine blogs. Chuck, welcome to Destination Eat. Thank you for having me. I was talking to Guy Hagi on the podcast, and uh, I told him the story about coming into Vino the first time. Me and my girlfriend, and I didn't know anything about the restaurant. We sat at the bar, we had some wine, and I was blown away by the scope, the breadth, and also some of the wines that you have on the list that are not really well-known from well-known regions. Not to mention the fact that it's very uh, wallet-friendly, which is something surprising in Honolulu. So the question is, how did you first get interested in wine, and what led you to uh, DK and Vino? So uh, I worked as a waiter for myself through college, uh, so part-time, you know, and uh, I always seemed to get promoted to restaurant management. I managed bag rolls in the Hyatt in the old days. I'm, I managed La Mara, shot the Holly County. So, and whenever I do anything, I have to know everything there is to know about everything. When it came to wines... Nobody can answer my question, so I just started studying. And I continue to study to this day. It's just a passion for me. It's just a little niche. So, as you can imagine, with restaurants like La Mer and Bagwell's, and I was also at the Kahali Hilton for many, many years. So I worked at Cedo for 16 and a half years. You know, we served all the dignitaries you could think of, all the famous celebrities. And wine had a different place then. You know, you have the... The local people who are drinking wine, and then you have the tourists that come to Hawaii and they're drinking wine. So restaurants where it's tuxedo, 
you know, of course, you're talking about top echelon, more trophy-style wines. And uh, during that time, I think local people drank wine, but not as much as you see today. It's really grown here. And so I think there's an opportunity. Just like when you go to Europe, you know, there's all these little wine bars in the Tecas, little bistros. They serve food that comes from their family's history. And they offer wines in pitchers and in little glasses. You know, it's not even real or anything fancy. And you eat the food, you drink the wine. So that's what DK and I try to create with Vino. It's just a little neighborhood kind of wine bar slash restaurant that does foods from throughout the Mediterranean basin. And some of the other things that's really important to us, we look to work with all these family-owned wineries, you know, uh, that, where they, they've owned their and operate their property for how many generations. And, you know, they learned their craft from their forefathers. And it's indigenous vines. And it's heirloom heritage vines. A lot of these wines have to be special ordered because, it's, you know, it's all about sales nowadays in the store. So every square foot is got to produce X amount of dollar volume. And I understand, you know, rents are going up, etc. So the chance of these smaller family-owned wineries being in many of the stores will be slim. From reading your website, I believe that you do a lot of traveling to find some of these uh, wineries as well. Absolutely. Talk to me about some of these places uh, that you've been maybe recently. You know, of course, I go to California frequently, but uh, the latest European trip, trip was in October, and my wife and I went to Corsica. Corsica's an oh, island off yeah. the southern tip of France. Yeah. I had wanted to go to Corsica for 40-something years. I had this wine back in the 70s, 80s, somewhere around there. I thought to myself, how the heck can man and God grow and create something like this? That's beyond grapes, beyond oak barrels, beyond winemaking. How the heck can they do this? So I've always wanted to go to Corsica. I was always told it wasn't safe. So my wife and I finally, and my cousin, we went to Corsica in October. And then after that, we went down to Sardinia, which is an island right below. Right Corsica. below it. That's part of Italy. Yes. Corsica is part of France. We should distinguish between the yes. two. Yes. And uh, although the Corsicans might not appreciate being called part of France, but however... <laughs> You know, what I loved about those uh, specific Corsica was that, uh, you know, when you go to all these other countries now, it's westernized, just like Hawaii is westernized. I mean, you're a tourist and you go down to Waikiki, is that Hawaii? And so it's the same thing as you see in Greece, it's the same thing you see in Spain, Italy, and all the big cities and everything. So Corsica, you know, you could, in the northern part specifically, it's all mountains. It's all very narrow, super windy roads, turns, no, no, no rails to protect you. You could drive for hours and not see any civilization, the signs of civilization. So that's a very remote place. That's still the way it was. And when you go to these little family restaurants and everything, it's so cool. The food is just plain, simple. The ingredients of the area, you know, man, I really hit home. And I would say the same thing with the wines. What what were the types of dishes that they were serving in Corsica? Because I would imagine that they have their own indigenous uh, diet menu, dishes, things like that. What unique things did you come across? So it just depends if you're in the mountains or you're by the ocean. By the ocean, of course, it's seafood. In the mountains, it's things like, you know, horse even, you know, cow, lamb. Yeah. I mean, more rustic. You don't see too much venison. Maybe I wasn't there in the right time of the year, but... You, know, you don't see a lot of those kind of foods, but you see more innards, you see more intestines, you oh, see yeah. more brains, things like that. You know, so they eat everything, and they and they, it's a part of their life, just like we eat, whatever it may be, uni or something. <laughs> you know, it's just it's a way of life there, and I loved it. I just 
you see how they eat. They, they don't just gingerly taste each morsel. They're like wolfing it down, just like Hawaiian wolf beef stew or something, you know? Right. It's just the way of life. There. Same thing with the wine. They don't swirl it. They eat the food, they gulp the wine, just like we go fruit punch, soda pop, iced tea in America, you know? So it's a beverage. I love that, that style. And that's what I want. Vino, that's what I'm hoping Vino will be. It's this neighborhood restaurant where you just come in and have, that's why pricing is important, but also authenticity is important. Keith, our chef, has been with us 20-something years. He and my partner, DK, just came back from Italy two and a half weeks, I believe they were there. And it's all these really cool neighborhood kind of foods that they did, you know what I mean? It's, it's, really, it's really rewarding. It's very fulfilling for me. And what kind of uh, grapes are they growing there? What kind of wines did you find on that trip? Well, the two main red grapes indigenous to Corsica is Chacarello, and the other one's called uh, New Luch. So they're indigenous, although uh, some people will say that they came from uh, mainland, um, specifically Italy. You know, Chacarello is believed to be called Mamolo, Tuscany. And New Luch is meant to be, uh, thought to be a spin-off of Sangiovese, which you see in Tuscany. Mm-hmm. Um, I truly believe they've adapted to be their own grapes, because they certainly don't taste like their counterparts in Italy, you know. And for the white wines, it's Vermentino. And Vermentino, whether it's southern France, Italy, uh, Sardinia, uh, Sicily, all these, Vermentino is considered one of the best, if not the best, white indigenous grapes. So those are the three main grapes you see. And then you see all these others, like in Corsica, there's... A lot of people going back to the grassroots and finding all these nearly forgotten, nearly extinct. Remember this one guy, Jean-Charles Abatucci, you know, he and his father would just trek up in the mountains and look for fallow vineyards or what they call peasant farmers. And they'd find all these long lost indigenous grapes that they're trying to resurrect. And I think that's a really cool thing, you know. And last night I did a tasting for some people. I showed them a grape called Pecorino. And Pecorino, you know, maybe... 1940s, there was 7,000 acres planted. Today, there's less than 200. Wow. So it's the same thing. And another wine I did on Sunday was a great variety called Lacrima. Lacrima comes from the Marche region of uh, eastern Italy. On the Adriatic Sea. Yes, facing the Adriatic Sea. So not to be confused with Lacrima Christi from Campania on the west coast, this is a grape that's called Lacrima, and there's less than 200 acres of that planted today. In 1985, when it was granted its appellation, you know, uh, at that time, there was only two producers. You know, it was nearly extinct. And so that's, that, that, you know, when you find something like that, that's cool. What are some of your favorite wine regions in Italy? Gosh, you know, it's really interesting. That was the purpose of, of the tasting on Sunday is that when you look at Italy, not all Italian wines are created the same. If you go to the north, the northeast specifically, in Alto Adige, you know, it borders Switzerland and Austria. So it's the Dolomites, it's the Dolomites, you know, the foothills of the Alps. There are so, Italians there that actually speak German. Exactly. So it, it's it's high altitude, it's cool, and the trees have a hard time growing. It's alpine, it's lighter, it's crisper. The soils are these glacial deposits of porphyry rock or quartz or mica or things like that. Whereas you look down and the tasting I did was uh, two wines from Salina. Salina is an island, part of the Aeolian Islands, just north of Sicily, just barely north of Sicily. Apparently, there's only eight or nine producers there. Five of them came from Spain and have been farming there for over 500 years. So it's flatter. It's hotter. You know, it's volcanic soils. So with some limestone here and there, so you have strong minerality in the wine, different than the quartz and the mica-generated ones up north. 
it's hotter, so it's rounder mouthfeel, richer, riper, you know, because it's a hotter growing area. Then you the, they overlook the ocean, so you get real salinity, in there, you know, and man, it's all these different grapes that do well down there. So the wines are completely different, even though they come under the category of Italian wines. And you can say the same thing about reds. You know, not all Italian wines are created equal. Not all American wines are created. Not all, it, it, it just stands to reason. You know, if you look at greens, you know, Nalo Farms have made a long history of these mescaline mixes of greens and lettuces. It's flat, it's sea level, it's why Manalo, it's hot. Those same seeds are growing up in Waimea on a big island, higher elevation, misty, cooler. The leaves are limper, they're not firm like the ones down here. You know, they're less spicy, they're less crunchy, they're limper, you know, and so it shows you how climate and soil can greatly affect greens. Well, the same applies with, with wines. So so Italy, man, there's a, there's a whole world to explore. It's crazy and it's fun. I've been talking to planters who have been saying, because of climate change, they are now changing the way that they um, prune the vines. And also they're looking to try to get to higher elevations because they want to have cooler temperatures. Some of some of the places they are is starting to burn, um, not burn, but it's it's too much heat uh, for the uh, for the grapes. So they're seeing effects of this kind of stuff, you know, not a hundred years out, but right now when they're when they're growing their uh, their crops. Absolutely. Just as a simple example so people can understand, you know, the, some of the finest wines in the world are produced, grown and produced in Germany. And in the old days, Germany was lucky if it would fully ripen two or three vintages out of every decade. Out of every ten, there would only be two or three uh, vintages. So imagine a restaurant only open two nights a week. Right. You know, it's just not possible. So they did everything they could to encourage more sugar, more sugar. So they're on the rivers, on steep hillsides that face the ocean almost all, I mean, face the sun almost every day. Maximize. You get the reflection. Maximum off. sun, less uh, frost chance. Exactly. You, even like reflection off the river, you know, sunlight. Even the rooftops are slate, so you get more reflection. Anything they can do to increase more sunshine for those grapes to get more physiologically mature. Today, we've essentially had every, a ripe vintage, every single vintage. Since 89, every single vintage. So something has changed. And so now, because the game has changed climatically, then we also need to look to adjust how we're growing our plants now. Rather than maximizing the sun, maybe we need to slow it down, you know, and, and not have the water and not have the, the rooftops and not have you know, the, the vines planted this way or the leaves pruned all the way. I don't have the answers. But the game has changed. And so what I always show people, since we talked about Corsica, there's a wine from the east side of Corsica. It's from a town called uh, Agione. And there's this one rosé from there called Marchiliani. And like several years ago, five, six, seven years ago, a longtime uh, acquaintance of mine, wine acquaintance, wrote me an email and says, Chuck, this wine is for you. It's like drinking a flower. It's so light and weightless. And after you swallow all that's left is perfume. Hmm. You know, and so I was like, I'm not into romantic notions, but I had to buy this wine. It, <laughs> it sounds like something you got to try, right? I bought it. If I didn't buy it then, I couldn't get that wine today. That's how that's how much it's taken off. It's this very pale, pale rosé. Pale. You, if, if I didn't tell you, you probably wouldn't even think it's a rosé. The point I want to say about this rosé, it's made from Chocorella, a very hearty, robust, gnarly, tannic, high acid grape, 90%. 
Ajone is very flat, but it's, it's not that close to the ocean, but it's close to the ocean, but it's hot. You know, so this winery, this lady winemaker, Vigneron, has proven with this effortlessly light, ethereal, whimsical, I mean, just so delicate rosé, it's possible to make a delicate wine, despite the fact we're getting more and more sunshine. So the question is, how does she do it? And then from there, how can I do this where I'm from? So whenever I do all these tastings, in, you know, whether it's California, wherever I go, I take a bottle of this with me to share with people because this wine, single wine, shows you it's possible to adjust to the changing uh, growing conditions to make a wine like we used to have. In 2015, my first novel was published, and it uh, concerns truffles. A lot of it concerns truffles. So oh, you're a fun guy. I'm a fun guy. <laughs> and so I've done immense amounts of research up to write that book and since then because truffles are interesting to me. And what you're finding is in France, especially in Italy as well, truffle production is down somewhere around 90 to 95 percent in the last uh, 100 years and is down another factor in the last 10 years. Some say it's due to just bad weather, but most people agree it's because of climate change. But the thing that's happening is now you're seeing truffles. They just found truffles in Scotland. They find truffles in Canada. They find truffles in Boston, Massachusetts, you know, places that never were thought before to be able to be hospitable to growing truffles. Now they're, now they're migrating slowly north. We're going to see this with agriculture. And of course, where agriculture goes, so goes insects and things like that. So it's a, it's a big change in the world. The problem is if you're a farmer growing or a vintner growing grapes, you can't just migrate your vines north or whatever you, you want to do easily. Well, I think that that brings up another issue, too, is that, you know, uh, you're absolutely right. But let me say this. You bring up a lot of interesting points. But number one, all these truffles, whether it's from Australia or Scotland or Oregon and whatnot, they're not as good as the Italians. They're not as pungent. So the soil really has something to do with it. That's this is the first true. thing I want to clarify. Yeah, this you is know, true. So we often use uh, Oregon truffles and whatnot. They just don't have the same pungency. Yeah. Okay, I, and I would like to circle back to that discussion in a minute. But the second thing I'd like to say is, is that, you know, um, one of the benefits of me digging around into less well-known places. So if I'm going to buy a house in Hawaii and I don't have a lot of money, I'm certainly not going to look at Kahalo Diamond Head. So if I'm going to buy a land that I can own and grow things, I'm going to look more that way. Right or Waimanalo, but more likely Nanakuli, that whole coast down there. Right. I'm sure the land is cheaper, it's hotter, it's flatter, it's et cetera, et cetera, right? Having said that, when you look, that's why I dig in places which are less known. So therefore, less mortgage is attributed to the cost of the bottom. Right. One of the benefits of, of looking in, in uh, southern France, in Corsica, Sardinia, where these multi-generational families uh, have been farming, there's no mortgage. I was going to say, the, the land is paid off. So when, when you then have to relocate it to another place or nothing, now we're talking about land at today's prices. Extraordinarily expensive. Right. So now we're talking about the chances of us finding, first of all, value is going to get slimmer. Second of all, if these new generations, these new generations are being sent to work in New Zealand, California, whatever, even though they're from Sardinia. And so they learn all these new work, world techniques and scientific approaches and all these things. So what often gets pushed aside is tradition. You know, so as people relocate and look for other places, 
traditions will get lost, whether it's truffle, or whether it's olives, or whether it's wine. You know, that's the other thing that I'm scared about. And then uh, having said that, then, is that the chances of finding these, uh, you know, like the great variety of Chardonnay is being planted in virtually every major wine growers in the world, right? It's, it's essentially the same set of genetic material. They're harvested the same degree of ripeness. They're fermented with the similar yeast strains at the same temperature for the same length of period of time. And then aged in either stainless steel or similar kind of oak barrels. Same, 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 same. It's like the fast food hamburgers. Although they taste different, they taste the same. So if we don't learn to appreciate indigenous and the way that it was grown and made in the old days, you know, and what the wines of the world don't taste the same. Chardonnay from Chile, from uh, Australia, from France, from whatever part of the world is going to taste the same. And then it begs the question, so if you're growing Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc in Italy, what does it have to do with Italy? And if you're aging in a French oak, what does that have to do with Italy? <laughs> so that's the problem when you go to food, you, you know, in Greece, you go down this alley, and you think you're going someplace remote and find some small rivers, also you see Prada. Right. And, and that's where our world is headed right now. So giving the, uh, the, the uh, small people a voice is trying to make sure that we celebrate where we came from. You know, all these small indigenous things. And hopefully with Vino, we do it in a way that's neighborhood. Not snooty, not looking down at you because you don't know what lacrima is or whatever. I want to introduce you. Just like introducing you to my friend. Hey, here's my friend. Please meet him. He's a nice guy. You know, he has a lot to offer. He's very intelligent. He can tell you about where he's from. And all these things. I think it's just a thing, an opportunity that to bring a little bit of someplace in the world to Hawaii you know, so you don't have to go there necessarily. I wanted to talk. Uh, I wanted to talk about this earlier, but we got off on tangents, which is good. Always tangents are fun. But um, you're a master sommelier. Right. In fact, you were one of the very first people in the world to attain the title of master sommelier. So my my question is, um, we've seen documentaries about the sommelier test, um, but what? was becoming a master sommelier like back in the 80s? In other words, what was the test like? What, because it was so new at that time. You're, you're asking a very interesting question, something I, 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 I try to think about almost every day. It's a really interesting question. So uh, I, when I passed in the 80s, I was number 10 in the country. Being a master sommelier was a craft. It wasn't a title, it was a craft. So one of the... The secretary of the Court of Master Sommeliers from England, <coughs> as a full-time job, what he did was a butler for, for royal families and upper-class upper families. He was a butler, and he took pride in that. You know, it wasn't like a secondary job or that you were someone's slave or something. He was proud that he was a butler. He was a professional butler. But to me, that's the craft. You know, and, and, and service excellence to me is not Tiger Woods. It's Tiger Woods' caddy. Hmm. He knows whether to walk two feet behind, ten feet behind. Whether to wipe the ball, not wipe the ball. Whether to offer a club selection, not offer it. You know, to talk to him, not to talk. Right. All Tiger has to focus in on is striking the ball squarely and in tempo. All the rest of the things the caddy should do. And so that's what service is to me, is that a customer shouldn't have to ask for something from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave. That's what service actually should be. You should think for your customer instead of just taking an order, firing the food, etc. etc. So that's the craft. So where it's gone to now is that it's all about the title. 
it's all about winning the Olympic gold or something like that, which I think is a great accomplishment and well-deserved. And if it means that people are studying more and more for wines, that's great. But I'm hoping everybody still remembers the craft. The craft. So you may be the best mixologist in the world, the best. Right? You make the most incredible drinks in the world. But if you can't connect with the customer, my question is, okay, what does that mean? Right? So it's, it's really about service. It's about the craft. So in case you didn't know, I was chairman of education for the Court of Masculinities from roughly 88 to 90, somewhere around, around 10 years or so. So eight of us helped set up all the courses and classes you see on the movies. And all the masters in the movies, uh, eight of us, we probably graded, you know. And so, you know, that was, uh, that's where I came from. And so now I see people study and memorize. But what about working on the floor? You know, and that's what the craft of being a sommelier is. It's, it's more about service. It's more about, you know, in the old days, you would apprentice with the master for X amount of years. So like being a carpenter, like being a plumber, you learn your craft, how to deal with customers, how to pair wines and foods, how to select what, what wines are good. You know, not, you know, my job isn't to taste the source what I like. It's not my job. Mm. At home use, I can certainly do that. I'm, I'm entitled to that. But as a professional, my... My job is to sift through all the allocations, all the pricing, all the quotas, all the awards, and determine how we as a corporation are going to spend our money. That's my job. You know, and then from there, to teach the staff, to nurture the customers along, uh, wine and food parents, things like that, so that we move as a complete restaurant as opposed to a restaurant that's only known as food, right? So that's the craft that I'm hoping more and more people will remember as we move forward, I do a big event in California. It's called Wine Speak. If you want to see that, it's called WineSpeakPaso.com. You can look at the past few uh, years that we did it, uh, 19 and 18. And so one of the panels that we created was, oh, so you want to be a sommelier? So I invited Fred Dane, who's one of the most famous. He's the guy, the main character in the movie Song. Mm-hmm. And I invited this guy, Nuncio Aliotto. He's from San Francisco. He's the most, he was chairman of the Court of Mass worldwide for like 15 years. So I asked them to come and share, the, and Mark Shishida from Alan Wong, as a matter of fact, was another one I invited, because he's a true sommelier. Please tell us, what does sommelier mean to you? What is the craft of being a sommelier? What does it mean to you? Why did you get into this thing? So remember, so we can all remember where we came from. It's a craft. It's, you know, it's the same thing that I would say about winemaking. So when I was in Corsica, the most famous winemaker is called John Charles Abatucci. And he's uber biodynamic, uber, 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 uber. I mean, he lives it. He doesn't talk. A lot of people talk. He lives it. So when he was talking about people that he respected, he referred to them as vignerons, B-I-G-N-E-R-O-N-S, vignerons. So vignerons, if you look it up in the French dictionary, it either means wine grower or winemaker. To him, it means something more. It's like uh, the difference between a samurai and a swordsman. There's a code, there's an ethic, there's a belief, there's a passion, there's a something besides the skill of using a sword, right? And so that's what I find. That's what I asked these gentlemen to talk about. What is a sommelier? What is a craft? Is there a way to incorporate this idea of craft into the sommelier exam, or is it just something that you have to have feel in your soul that, hey, this... I'm going to take this to heart and I'm going to really do it. Well, I, I think it's, uh, that thing is so subjective. How can you create something? Right. So I don't think that the, the master sommelier program or, or 
any sommelier program can weigh that out fairly. I just, I just appealing to those people that are, are taking the exam. You know, please remember what the craft is, not only the theory. You know, so my my daughter danced for Miss Lola a few years ago, right? She was saying that's supposed to don't win. And my question, my, my reply to her was, girlfriend, if you're going there to win, to me you're going there for the wrong reason. Give the opportunity to show the world your mama and your aloha your way. What more can you ask? Enjoy the journey. Enjoy what you've got to learn and see and do and feel. You know, and it's the same thing. It's the craft of the hula. It's the craft of living your own. It's the craft of a sommelier. That's why, you know, we have seven restaurants. You know, do I have to work every night and everything? No, but this is what I love to do. All the other things. Someone else runs our corporation now. I love walking the floor. I, that's that's in my blood. I couldn't retire. I, there's no way I would be so bored. <laughs> you know, it's just seeing a light bulb go in someone's head when you recommend a certain wine or something. That is like the coolest thing for me. You know, it's like wow. And then you show somebody something new. You know, and it's not fufu. It's like real substance. It's like this family's been doing it for over 500 years, man. And it took, you know how long it took us to get here. This wine. You know, I mean, it's just I. If I want a wine, I'm gonna get it. You know, no matter what, I'm going to get it. You know, and so and when I can show people that wine, it's like, wow, that's cool. So, Chuck, let's talk some of the wines that you actually have on the list right now at Vino. What are, what are some new ones and what are some of your old favorites? Well, the one I, we were talking about is uh, we're going to Trimonte and Truffle sharing the same soil. Yes. After this, we'll go downstairs to try it. And so it has that core consistency, but it has the wild... Strawberry rose petal aromatics of oh, the grape. Can't wait. It's a crazy wine, and it's one of the hardest wines for me to get. It's, it's not expensive. It's just it's not made very often. And then the other one was that rose from Corsica. It was like drinking cloud. I want you to try that too. That's why I went downstairs to <laughs> make sure we're all squared. And then, um, but more importantly, what I wanted to share with you was the opportunities. So, what Vino is, is how can we get more and more people to enjoy wine? Not to learn about wine necessarily, just enjoy wine. Wine should be about enjoying. So what can we do? So like once a month we do a wine one-on-one where I sit down with 12 people and I teach them how to taste wines and I show them all these different wines. Every time it's, whenever I do an event, I don't pull more than 12 ounces of wine. I think that's responsible. So there'll be two ounces of wine and six wines, something like that. That's what we do. So that's one thing we do. And I teach them how to taste the wines. I show them all these different grapes, so they, it, it demystifies what the name is, right? Another thing we do every Thursday, we do a tasting of all these really interesting wines that we found from around the world, just to show them more uh, people that want to know what's out there, different kinds of wines. Another thing we do is the BYOB dinner. So most restaurants discourage you bringing your own bottle. So once a month, what we do is the chef and I will set a menu, and it's all these courses, and then... I make wine recommendations. What kind of wines would go with this dish? Mm. What kind of wine? So everybody brings their own bottle. So people can go online, look at what the menu is going to be, yeah. what your recommendations are. They go to the liquor store, they can pick that up, yeah. and then they bring it with and them. And they share. So, so first of all, uh, we send out a, a, a weekly email newsletter. So people have to give their email address. We send out a weekly. So it advises them of all these activities. So regarding the BYOB dinner, what happens is. We just make long tables. You may not know each other at the beginning of the night. By the end of the night, you've made new <laughs> wine friends. You know, yes. that's the intent of this thing is to 
bring people together because they love wine, they love wine and food. So what can we do to encourage this team? Once a month now, we're trying to do these dinners where last month was Piemontese. I did these grapes and wines you not normally see from Piemonte. And we pair dishes with them with Piemontese-style foods, you know, just to show what it's like to to eat in Piemonte, you know, in Alba. Yep. You know, just to show people different things. One time it was Corsican. You know, just to show, you know, for the chef, we do all this research to find the right kind of foods, the right kind of wine pairings, and just to show people, and not to make it cerebral, intellectual, just to enjoyment. See how this wine is? Now, try it with this dish. You know, how can we make people enjoy wine? So that that's the kind of activities that we look to do, you know, just to make it more accessible. Another thing we do is like a wine and food workshop that happens maybe once every five weeks. And we do three wines. We taste through the wines together. And then I ask the chef to bring out a little tidbit so that you try it with three wines. And you comment as a group. We comment as a group. We discuss it. What works, what doesn't work in your mind. Not what I say, yeah. but what the group says. And so that way we can learn from each other. creates camaraderie again. You know? So these are the kind of activities that I want to make it interactive. I want to make it like we're coming to share insights, wisdoms, experiences, so we can learn from each other. So that's and by doing that, it's it's amazing. You know, we were just in New Zealand in January, and you talk about the long tables, and this is something that we saw all over New Zealand was restaurants with these long communal tables, and we met and made so many friends that way, just as being people who were passing through town. Absolutely, but we met locals, we met people who were visiting there, the the whole thing, and it was just. I loved it. It was so great. So we take that a step further by making it BYOB. Right. You bring whatever you want to out of the cellar. Here's the recommendation of the food. One, one bottle per person. And just share. We do that like once every month. Last Sunday very much. So I mean just things to encourage enjoyment of wine. You know. So you've been doing this for a long time. You've been a master sommelier for over 30 years. You've been involved with this for longer than that. I am wondering... What have you noticed, not in the wine industry, but as far as wine drinkers go, has there been a change in the last 30 years? What about younger people coming up now? Are they different than folks who are old like me, or um, is it the same going through time? I don't know how to answer that, because I don't get out much. I don't get out of I'm not... But you're serving these. You're serving these people, or at least you're you're uh, purchasing wine for them. Well, when they come here, they have a different mindset. Ah, okay. But I think that what I can comment on is the availability of wines in the retail stores, mm. and I think uh, it's more about recognizable brands, nice bottles, pretty labels, eye-catching slogans, you know, all these things. And it's you know, it's what's getting. So before you go to a store, and the olive oil section was this big, right? Today you go, maybe this big or a little smaller, and if you look closely, it's only four or five brands. Right. It's just all spread out in different bottle shapes, different bottle sizes. It's the same brand, just different bottle sizes. Sure. And then if you look closely, it's refined olive oil. It's not olive oil. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's that's kind of like what I see out there, you know. And, and, and so if the wine doesn't sell, then it's out and a new brand comes in. So it's olive oil, shampoo, olive oil, soap, whatever, you know, wine. So I think that's a scary thought because what we're missing is artisan. And, and, and then because of that, you see 
really being more and more about these grapes that are more about production, more about bigger yields, easier to grow, more diseases, more, you know, and so we're losing the heirloom heritage vine. So I mentioned to you that grape variety Pecorino, you know, that's Italy. You know, I mean, it's, but there's only 200 acres planted. There's so, no mechanical harvesting going on yeah. there. So I just think it's, you know, the trends are, you know, uh, name brands, I think, that a style of rich, open, and I think, why do we have to limit ourselves? And I'm not saying there's not a place for those kind of wines, but the way I look at wines is, can, can't I appreciate my son for who he is and my daughter for who she is and not have to choose a favorite or not compare? I think that's a perfect way for us to leave it. Uh, but before we go, though, um, Vino's website is? Vino H.I. VinoHI.com. Maybe it's Vino Hawaii. I'm not sure. Okay. I'll look it up and I'll, I'll tag it on the end of the episode. And what is your personal website where people can follow you and follow your blog? Because it's fantastic. Everyone should read this. It's www.chuckferuria.com. Okay. Chuck, thanks so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. It's been a real pleasure talking to someone who is so into this and also knows all these things that just bring out the wine to a new level for everyone. Thank you. Taste some wine before you go? Uh, Of course I can. (laughs) There's always time for wine. Destination Eat Drink. All right, there you have it. You know, it's funny. At one point in the interview, I had to cut this part out, but at one point in the interview, Chuck excuses himself and left me sitting in the dining room by myself. What he was doing was he went downstairs to the wine bar and set up our wine tasting for after the show. And it was everything you could imagine from a master sommelier offering you a personally curated wine tasting. Thanks to Chuck and all the folks at Vino who were so nice to me while I was there. And you can visit Chuck's place, Vino, in Honolulu, Hawaii. I've said it before, even before I met Chuck, even before I knew who he was, it is my favorite wine bar in all of the United States. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, or at radiomisfits.com. The show is distributed by Ed Silla. I'm Brent Peterson. Next week, we'll be going to another great eating and drinking destination. Until then, I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.